Hi, I'm Andy, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's lunchtime, October the 29th. It's five days until you know what, and the stories coming out about the election become odder and odder. This one of the stories that caught my attention um, yesterday was uh, Trump's rally in Arizona in which he brought on Nigel Farage, the uh, the Brexit champion from the UK who described, uh, who, who Trump described as the king of Europe. I didn't know Europe had a king. Um, uh, and the, the photos of uh, Farage and, and Trump were quite striking. Um, and they speak, I think, of this weird symmetry uh, between the UK and, and the US in terms of this shift towards nationalism, Brexit, xenophobia. And one person who's given a lot of thought to that very weird relationship is my old friend Ian Baruma. He is the former editor of the New York Review of Books and the author of an extremely interesting book that just came out, The Churchill Complex, the, this relationship between the UK and the US. Um, and it was a book that uh, he came on the show actually earlier this year to discuss. Uh, Ian, um, Nigel Farage and Donald Trump, uh, has tragedy turned to farce here? Well, a little bit. I mean, uh, whatever else Nigel Farage may be, he certainly isn't the king of Europe. Um, or <laughs> he only got as far as being a, uh, an MEP, um, a, a parliamentarian in the European Parliament. He never had any other position at all. But he was a very successful wrecker um, in his own country. Um, where he certainly did the dirty work for the Brexit campaign. And um, uh, in terms of the dirty work, he and Trump are very much in the same wavelength. I mean, they exploit the same kind of resentments. They whip up the same kind of loathing against the so-called elites and so on and so forth. But right now, I think post-Brexit, he's basically a showman for hire. And I don't think you don't really read much about him in Britain anymore. Um, he's a busted flush there. Uh, he got what he wanted. And so uh, he appears on Trump's stage. I don't want to tempt fate, uh, Ian. And, and I know you don't either. We we're talking before the show about the likelihood of, 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 of Trump's defeat. And it seems likely, if we're to believe the pollsters, but if indeed he is defeated on Tuesday, does that speak of a, of a profound setback of this Brexit wall project, this return to authoritarian nationalism in the early part of the 21st century? Well, it won't do away with it, but uh, I certainly think it will be a setback in the sense that... Um, the president of the United States has been a great booster um, of uh, the fortunes of, of similar demagogues in other countries. Um, he's given them a certain kind of legitimacy and even uh, countries that are not democratic at all. Um, what Trump has done is um, give them 
the argument that they can say, well, all this talk about democracy is very fine, but look what happens. You get a guy like Trump. And so he's been terrible in that respect uh, abroad. His, his influence has been terrible. And I think his defeat would at least um, knock the ball back a little bit in the other direction. Um, Biden is going to be more of an internationalist uh, uh, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So, yes, I think it, it would be a good thing. But the, what Trump and Farage and other demagogues Victor Orban in, in Hungary and so on, have been able to exploit uh, those resentments, uh, those people who feel left behind and um, not sufficiently listened to and acknowledged by the, the elites, uh, they're not going to go away. And so those sentiments will be there. And it's still politically very flammable material. Um, I don't know if you watched, I'm sure you did, um... Um, Ian, the uh, the debate uh, last week between Biden and Trump, but I was particularly struck by the absence of any real discussion about foreign policy outside North Korea, which isn't really foreign policy. Yes, what do you make of the this seemingly in, the the seemingly insular nature of the discussion, not only uh, uh, um, in the Trump camp but in the Biden camp as well? Well, I think the United States, like all big continental countries, um, always has been rather insular. I mean, most people um, in, in most parts of the United States are not terribly interested in the world outside. They're, they never see it. I think still probably the majority of Americans don't have a passport, including congressmen. Um, so the, the outside world always has been remote for many Americans, just as it is for Indians or, or, or Chinese or Russians. Um, the interest in foreign policy is largely an elite one uh, on the two coasts, and then especially on the East Coast. Um, so if you want to be successful as a presidential candidate, on the whole, you, you, you stay away from foreign affairs because people don't care about it. You talk about the economy, you talk about things that people feel in their daily lives. And so I think uh, in the case of Biden, uh, that's why he didn't talk about it very much, even though he is quite interested in foreign policy. Uh, in the case of Trump, uh, I really don't think the outside world accepts perhaps to do business, but is something that uh, preoccupies him particularly. Even though Trump, who contradict, contradicts himself not only every day, but sometimes you know within minutes, has been fairly consistent in one sense, which is his hostility to China. I mean, he's talked about that for years. And so that did come up uh, in the debate. But I don't think that this year, even though the level of the debate, certainly the first one, um, was lower than and ruder and crasser than anything seen before, um, I don't think it's unusual in that foreign policy doesn't get very much of a look in. There's been a, an outcry amongst the liberal commentariat, particularly the internationalist one, perhaps best represented by Martin Wolf, the economics writer for the Financial Times, who's been on this show before, about this being such a critical election because the U.S. global role is at stake. Roger Cohen of the New York Times has also written a, a, a similar piece. We've Everybody says... Uh, Ian, that this is the most important election for a generation or perhaps forever, blah, blah, blah. So we don't need to re return to that or repeat that. But do you think this 
election will determine U.S.'s role in, in global affairs in, in, in the 21st century? Is it critical for that? Well, I think it is, but I don't think you can separate international affairs from domestic affairs. I mean, one of uh, the great strengths of the United States has been its soft power, its role, uh, not as so much as a military force, even though that's important, but its role as a kind of model. And this, is the, uh, this is the, the Joan I idea of soft power, which uh, he has popularized the notion that that's how you get strong in the world, not through your military power, but through your cultural power. Well, in the case of the US, of course, it's both. But, uh, but this, the, despite all its flaws, the United States always has sort of represented a, a hope for liberal democracy. And if that gets wrecked in, inside the United States, um, then um, it loses uh, really the, one of the main reasons for its raison d'etre in, in the outside world. And so, yes, I think it is extremely important. Do you think, Ian, that U.S. cultural superstars, the Bruce Springsteens of the world, still carry the same weight, not only internally within the United States, but globally? Springsteen, of course, surprise, surprise, has been very vociferous in his call to defeat Trump in the polls next week. But is American popular culture as, as powerful as it was while we were growing up? Well, I think it's probably commercially still very powerful um, that, that Hollywood movies and, and, uh, and popular music and so on still uh, probably do very well globally compared to any other country, um, even though that's diminished somewhat in, because other countries have become so rich. And so in East Asia, K-pop and, and Japanese uh, popular, popular culture and so on have, have gained an influence, at least in Asia. And, and the K-pop well. uh, the, the, the crowd are, are fairly influential on Instagram and other social media platforms in terms of fighting. That's right. But, uh, but that doesn't mean that American popular culture isn't important. But I think what, what, what you can say is that in the 60s and 70s, it played not only, it was not only that, that it played a big role in uh, entertaining many people and in making a lot of money. But in many parts of the world, it was also uh, a symbol of, of freedom. And in, in, especially in communist countries, not only blue jeans, but also, excuse me, but also uh, rock, um, really which was banned, uh, really symbolized um, uh, a vision of democracy and liberalism and, 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 and so on that was very powerful. And so when Václav Havel, the playwright who became pre the first president after uh, the fall of communism in, in the Czech Republic, one of his first moves was to make, it was either Lou Reed or Frank Zappa mm. into a, a cultural ambassador, which showed how important that culture had been for the Czechs when they were under a communist regime. Well, that kind of role is no longer played by American pop culture. Right, of course, Lou Reed, unfortunately, isn't around anymore. Bruce Springsteen now is 71. Um, do these major cultural figures like Springsteen, do they seem a little absurd now? They're so wealthy, so powerful. Are they really credible, do you think? Well, I never thought they were particularly credible as political spokesmen, uh, but then I didn't live in, in Prague in, in, in 1968. But um, 
they're as credible as any other entertainer and successful entertainers, especially American entertainers, become very wealthy. There's nothing unusual about that. But uh, no, I wouldn't take them. I wouldn't take them terribly seriously as spokesmen. And I don't think even in America, many all that many people do. Ian, uh, you were in the news, probably not, 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 not making you particularly happy a year or two ago because of your uh your uh experience at the new york review of books when you were forced out uh for for reasons which we don't need to go into today but they certainly were connected with the the correction culture with the what some people see as a kind of a, a militant intolerance from the left do you see that culture being spread overseas uh in uh, i'm a big fan as you know of english football now uh before every match, the players uh, do their uh, Black Lives Matter kneel. Uh, it's still not clear to me. I'm very sympathetic to Black Lives Matter, but it's still not clear to me why they're kneeling in the UK over this and not over mass murder in Syria. Is this new kind of uh, cultural power amongst progressives on the left in America? Is this the new soft power? Well, it certainly shows that the influence of America is still profound, especially in English-speaking countries, but not only in English-speaking countries. Um, I suppose one of the best examples of this is the recent row over uh, an exhibition that was going to be held first in uh, the United States and then in Britain, and then I think elsewhere, of uh, the art, the paintings of Philip Guston. And they contained images of the Ku Klux Klan. And it was very clear from the paintings and from everything we know about Guston that he, 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 he meant it absolutely as a, an attack on racism and racist symbols. But uh, people have become so, so sensitive and touchy about these things that it was um, postponed for several years and people American Museum felt that they couldn't put on this show because people might get the wrong idea. Now, Tate Modern in London um, also um, decided to postpone it um, for those reasons. And one of the curators said on Instagram that he thought this was very condescending to viewers who surely would understand uh, these pictures and didn't need to be treated like children. He was immediately suspended. And this shows that this wave of um, uh, intolerance and hypersensitivity um, that began in America uh, certainly has spread. Um, how far that will go, how long it will last, uh, who knows? But it, do, it do does show that America that, is, still, is still a force. Do you expect that that intolerance will be heightened more by a, a Trump or a Biden victory? I think by Trump victory, because I think that um, Trump, with his own uh, variety of, of intolerance and 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 of course uh, bigotry and racism and uh, disparagement of women and so on, inflames the left. Uh, there will also be a sense of impotence that you know, however much one tries, we couldn't get rid of this guy. And uh, that will definitely inflame passions, cause, cause more rage uh, and so on. Um, I think also that w w the other thing the Biden victory will do is that it'll, uh, it'll, it'll provoke a very necessary debate 
on the left itself, just as it should provoke a necessary debate on the on the right, in that now the Republican Party is Trump's party. If Trump is defeated by a large margin, the party will have to really start rethinking that. But the splits on the left between the sort of old-fashioned liberal Democrats and uh, people who are more on the left, more invested in, in ideological um, uh, politics on, on identity and race and so on, um, that's another argument that has to be had. And I think it'll be much easier to have that argument uh, with the Biden administration because you won't feel that you're letting your own side down. Intolerance, of course, is not unique to the United States. Uh, Britain, that you're an expert in, and particularly in your in your book on Churchill, uh, is in the news yesterday because they uh, suspended the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, because of his seemingly indifferent response to the report on anti-Semitism within the party. Is this a healthy thing, Ian? Uh, is Labour cleaning out its stables of intolerance? Well, I certainly think that Labour is in better shape now than it was under Jeremy Corbyn. And I also think that people like the, 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 the sort of radical left of the Labour Party um, represented by Jeremy Corbyn, I'm not sure that they're vicious anti-Semites. I think there some of them maybe, but I think that they're obtuse. On the, I don't think they ever got it. I well, think I that, think they're knowingly obtuse. These people aren't, aren't stupid, and they know that their obtuseness is a, a, a way, for better or worse, of manifesting a, perhaps a, a soft anti-Semitism and an upset. Well, I think, that, I think that people, leftists like Corbyn, probably, first of all, they think they cannot be anti-Semitic because, after all, they're, anti, they're anti-racists. That's one thing mm. that they feel inoculates them against this. The other thing I think they would say is we're not against Jews. Absolutely. I mean, my best friends are Jews. But there are these rich Jewish bankers who, um, who control things and have a noxious influence. And they probably really believe that. And they don't think it's anti-Semitic. They don't see it. That's what I meant by obtuse. Of course, it is anti-Semitic. Do we need to send them to re-education camps, Ian? Would I? Do we need um, to? We collectively? Um, I don't think so. I think that the uh, 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 getting rid of them uh, and and the fact that uh, they got rid of Corbyn and they got rid of Ken Livingston, the former mayor of London, and so on, is is good enough. And um, I think again, I'm not a great fan of punishing people or or, or cancelling them or anything like that. I think what, what what needs to be had is a is a is a real discussion about this, and um, people need to be enlightened, and people on the left need to realize that uh, you know there is a long history to um, uh, such um, images as you know the rich Jews who pull all the strings and so on. Uh, Ian, uh, as I said, your your marvelous new book, The Churchill Complex, is about this weird relationship like a marriage or perhaps a bad marriage or a false marriage between the UK and the US. The final chapter in your book is, of course, the relationship between Trump and Johnson. But there's a there may be a new chapter starting after Tuesday. If Biden is indeed elected to office, uh, how would you predict the next chapter in, in the Churchill complex? You'll obviously have to deal with Boris Johnson in the short term. 
but it's also conceivable but there'll be a new kind of axis with with, with labor if, if they're eventually elected to office well i kind of doubt it because i think unlike um people who are in favor of brexit and who um pictured a future Britain untethered from the European Union and so on as a sort of revived big global player um, uh, like in the good old days, uh, I, I think they're, they're wrong. And I think the result of Brexit is going to be that Britain becomes an increasingly provincial place that will be taken less seriously in Washington as well as everywhere else. And uh, whoever's in power in Washington will take care of or try and take care of American interests as they see it. And um, the interests, especially the economic interests, are much more with the EU, which is one of the most powerful economic blocks in the world, than they are with uh, uh, the British Isles um, uh, on their own. I mean, it's still an important country, but it's nothing it has nothing like the clout the EU has, and, and Britain has nothing like the clout it had as a leading member of the EU. So if indeed Biden is elected, would his special relationship be with Merkel, do you think? Well, Merkel he won't be there for very much longer. But uh, American presidents have had uh, actually better, often more profound relationships with German chancellors than with prime ministers for a long time. I mean, the, the relationship with the prime ministers were often cordial and American presidents liked to, you know, to ride a horse with the Queen in, in, in Windsor and all that. But um, when it came to, to real business, I think they looked to Bonn and now Berlin uh, for much longer than, um, than, than this year. So what becomes of England then, or Britain? This, um, this former wife will disappear, angry, bitter, ignored. Yeah, well, it might become a kind of more powerful Austria with sort of beautiful buildings and fine museums. Is that, is that your uh, is that your Dutch humor there? A more powerful Austria, Ian? <laughs> lovely landscape, um, sound of music. Place to, lovely place to visit, but I, I think it'll be be a less uh, significant country. Yeah. And finally, Ian, I, I'm not going to get your 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 prediction on the election because that's being done done too often but any predictions on america is it done i mean a lot of people perhaps even no, of course Martin Wolf, are, are we finished with this american american experiment in democracy and inspiring the rest of the world no i don't think so um and especially if if uh the rascal was voted out. Um, I think there is plenty of chance still, especially if the Democrats get the Senate, uh, there's plenty of chance of reform and uh, it's by, by no means done. But I think another four, four years of Trump will make things very, very difficult. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. 
Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.